0: Hey, everybody, and welcome to the Five Bytes Podcast. I'm your host, Rory Monahan. The podcast, as always, is brought to you by my sponsors Policy Pack Software, now part of NetRix, where you use Group Policy or MDM to remove admin rights, manage the lockdown applications, Java, browsers, and mitigate ransomware, plus more. And also brought to you by Liquidware, the innovator in adaptive workspace management solutions. And of course, also brought to you by ControlUp, end-to-end digital experience management for the work-from-anywhere era. ControlUp, happy users, happy IT. If you enjoy the show each week, you have these awesome sponsors to thank. And now for some news. Well, right on cue... Just after I published last week's episode of the podcast where I covered a roundup of the Patch Tuesday patches, the stories of issues and conflicts caused by those patches started to roll in. So first up, Beta News reported that some users are experiencing problems with the start menu, with complaints indicating that the menu is being interrupted by an app opening and closing. There have also been complaints about errors appearing after a failed installation of KB5015814, specifically error codes 0x8000FFF and also 8007007E and 80073701. They report that users who encountered the errors also report Windows getting stuck in a boot loop And the problems with the start menu seem to be rather less common, but there are still numerous complaints from affected users who are reporting their problems on Reddit. Microsoft have acknowledged a couple of known issues with that particular KB. However, the error messages, failed installations, and start menu problems were not some of those issues that were acknowledged by Microsoft. Based on reports, if you are affected by... The error messages are the start menu problems. The only fix right now is to uninstall that particular update. Daniel Pinault and also others in the community reported on an issue after patching. When you try to open an ACCDE or MDE file, Um, you may receive an error message with the text, requested type library or wizard is not a VBA project. The same issue may also cause an error with the text can't complete the output operation when trying to export to text or Excel files. And it appears to affect Microsoft 365 all versions including the July 12th, 2022 update, uh, KB5002121 for Office 2013, and KB5002112 for Office 2016. Now at the time of this recording, it looks like Microsoft have acknowledged the problems and in their advisory, they now list that some versions of Office appear to have a fix available already, but others do not and Microsoft has said that they're working on the other fixes. In the meantime, some on Daniel's website have been commenting with suggested fix of running a reinstall and they provide a specific command line that you can use to get yourself back up and running. A few months ago, I reported that Microsoft was planning to change its update cadence for the operating systems to turn back away from the more frequent major updates they had been doing, at least somewhat, over the last few years in favor of going back to fewer major updates. Of course, many of us will also remember that Microsoft claimed that Windows 10 was going to be the final major operating system release for desktops with all future updates being made incrementally to Windows 10 rather than in major swings like releasing a Windows 11. But then Windows 11 came along. Well, it looks like Microsoft are now planning to go back to their old way of taking a major swing every three years and releasing new major operating systems. Now, before we get too ahead of ourselves though, To me, it reads like this is being based simply on the fact that Microsoft scrapped a Windows 11 feature update and WindowsCentral.com reported that this suggests a move away from the old update cadence, or rather, the current update cadence and possibly going back to the old update cadence of major operating system releases. And this announcement is somewhat timely because I wrote a guest blog for Source One Technology some time ago, but it only got published on July 4th. It was on Windows 11 and whether or not I thought it was enterprise ready, but I also touched on the topic of why Microsoft went back to the old ways and did a full major operating system release in Windows 11. And just a snippet of that blog, because it is topical to what I'm talking about right now, I said that perhaps It was due to enterprises not having an appetite for the more frequent OS update cadence that many got with Windows 10, unless you were using obviously the long-term service channel. But also maybe enterprises preferred a large upheaval once every decade or so versus many feature upgrades in a shorter time. Microsoft has already announced its intention to change the feature update cadence for Windows, which is what I alluded to at the beginning of the story. But Microsoft over the last few years has been working on hardening security on the desktop operating system and perhaps it was a smarter strategy to implement some of the security features in a new major operating system entirely to encourage a rip and replace for customers. Implementing a large change like some of those found in Windows 11 would be tricky to complete with an in-place Windows 10 update in my opinion. Or maybe the major Windows 11 release is simply branding and marketing. Feature updates on Windows 10 don't get the same level of attention as a major new version. When competing with operating systems, maybe Windows was losing some shine by being perceived to have stagnated with Windows 10. It could be for all of these reasons, or maybe none of them. Uh, One thing for sure, Windows 11 is not Windows 10, and it brings with it some substantial changes, and it's certainly not just a feature update. And I would guess for further security hardening, like we saw with the Requirement for TPM, it's possible that those more heavy-handed security features can only be rolled out in an operating system where customers rip and replace. So I could see some logic in it, basically, is what I'm trying to say. This week, you couldn't escape the news that parts of Europe were literally melting. And no, I'm not misusing the word literally. There were reports of an RAF airfield and also, I believe, Luton Airport being shut down at least temporarily in the United Kingdom due to runways melting. There are, of course, forest fires, brush fires, and even buildings just combusting in the heat. And perhaps, not surprisingly, some data centers in Europe have been struggling in the heat, too. The Register reported this week that Oracle customers were unable to use some services on Tuesday, with Oracle making a statement, quote, as a result of unseasonal temperatures in the region, a subset of cooling infrastructure within the UK South data center has experienced an issue. As a result, some customers may be unable to access or use Oracle Cloud infrastructure resources hosted in that region. Quote. Google Cloud said a number of its products are experiencing elevated error rates, latencies, or service unavailability when served from systems located in Europe, West 2A, which is one of its London facilities. These issues are affecting various services relating to storage and compute, including BigQuery, SQL, and Kubernetes. And this outage has, for one thing, brought down WordPress websites hosted by WP Engine in the UK, which is a very popular uh, provider. For their part, Google said, in order to prevent damage to machines in an extended outage, we have powered down part of the zone and are limiting GCE preemptible launches, and we are seeing regional impact for a small proportion of newly launched persistent disk volumes and are working to restore redundancy for the impact of replicated persistent disk devices. I think the funny part of this, kind of, is the fact that Oracle uses the term unseasonal temperatures. It's like, well, I mean, the season is summer, so it's hot in the summer, so it's not really unseasonal. It's just incredibly hot for the region. It should never really be this hot, or at least it never was in the past. So, unfortunately, this is a grim look at our future. There were some updates announced for Windows 365 with the July release this month including support for virtualization-based workloads being now generally available. So I believe that's for using things like the in-guest Hyper-V and some of those virtualization features. There's also now support for transferring files from your cloud PC using the windows365.microsoft.com web client, and also a new health check to verify that Intune enrollment restrictions allow Windows enrollment and before getting away from Windows 365 completely, Citrix had an announcement around Windows 365, which I think it's been a month since I talked about the announcement of an enhanced partnership between Microsoft and Citrix, but they never really followed through on any details. Well, now there have been some details released. So there's now a connector in Microsoft Endpoint Manager, which you can use for managing your enterprise cloud PCs. And that connector is for the Citrix HDX Plus, as they're calling it which allows you to publish cloud PCs straight in your existing Citrix workspace. And it's interesting as it suggests you can get the benefits of Citrix Workspace's enhanced security, so things like, you know, the different identity providers you could support within Citrix Workspace, uh, using some of the Citrix policies, and also get the benefits of just using the HDX protocol. And there's also suggestions that due to be using HDX and the Citrix Workspace app, you can now actually run and support Windows 365 Cloud PCs on a greater range of endpoints than you previously could if you're just relying on the remote desktop client. So certainly a pretty interesting announcement. It would be interesting to see if there's gonna be further announcements, I would assume like you know, published applications, from Citrix Cloud running within Windows 365, which should already work today anyway, but maybe it's not something that's being actively promoted yet. Also Azure related at least, the Gateway Load Balance service is now generally available in Azure. They say that the Gateway Load Balance borrows a majority of the same concepts as the standard load balancers that customers are already familiar with today. You'll have most of the same components such as front-end IPs, load balancing rules, back-end pools, health probes, and metrics, but you'll also see a new component unique to the Gateway Load Balance, which is the VX LAN tunnel interfaces. And they say that this is an encapsulation protocol utilized by the Gateway Load Balancers. This allows traffic packets to be encapsulated and decapsulated with VXLAN headers as they traverse the appropriate data path, all while maintaining their original source IP and flow symmetry without requiring source network address translation, or SNAT, or other complex configurations like user-defined routes. I saw that Martina Grum on Twitter shared the fact that in the most recent Microsoft Teams update, which I actually featured on the last episode of the podcast, I believe, uh, but she picked up the fact that the Wiki tab, so if you're going to a Teams and you know, you click on the Teams and it takes a while to load, and then you see all those tabs loading in the Team, well, the Wiki tab is now gone. So one last tab, so hopefully they'll be quicker to load when you click on those Teams. Also recently announced was the Microsoft Teams Connect shared channels being moved into general availability and they say that enables frictionless collaboration within organizations but it also looks like you're able to share these outside of the organization so i believe it's somewhat like that slack connect feature they expect the complete rollout of this to be they expect this rollout to be completed by mid-august so if you haven't got it yet you should be getting it by mid-august Danny Bradbury from InfoSecurity Magazine covered a worrying story this week about 4,500 transplant participants at the Virginia Commonwealth University Health System having their very sensitive information leaked, including names, social security numbers, dates of procedures, medical records, lab results, and more. The leak started all the way back in 2006 and involves both those receiving a transplant and those donating. The organization has mailed affected individuals where possible and offer them free credit reports. Only those whose social security numbers were affected get the free credit monitoring, which that seems to be a standard now when these breaches happen to offer like two or three years of free credit reports services, which I don't know, a bit of a joke, but whatever. And, man, I feel like if my life was saved by an organ transplant at this facility, I'd probably be not sweating this too much because, hey, they helped save my life. But if I was the one giving an organ and likely shortening my lifespan by doing so, and they leaked my data, I think I'd be pretty pissed. (laughs) Pissed. InsuranceJournal.com, which is not a publication I referenced on this tech podcast before, reported this week about what may be one of the first court filings of its kind. Insurance company Travelers is asking a district court for a ruling to rescind a policy because the insured allegedly misrepresented its use of multi-factor authentication or MFA, a condition to getting cyber coverage. According to the filing in the U.S. District Court for Central District of Illinois, the insurance company said it would not have issued a cyber insurance policy in April to to, to Decouter, which is an Illinois-based electronics manufacturing services company, International Control Services, or ICS, if the insurer knew the company was not using MFA, as it said. Additionally, travelers want no part of any losses, costs, or claims from ICS, including from a may ransomware attack that ics suffered interestingly it also says that ics was hit by ransomware in december of 2020 and now travelers say that it wants the court to declare that the insurance contract is null and void rescind the policy and declare it has no duty to indemnify or defend ics for any claim so it could be a very interesting precedent set in this case we'll have to keep an eye on it Apple unveiled an upcoming security feature that, interestingly, they upfront are telling customers that if you use this feature, it will degrade your user experience. But it is for those who really need an extra added layer of security, and the security feature is called Lockdown Mode. Lockdown mode offers an extreme, optional level of security for the very few users who, because of who they are or what they do, may be personally targeted by some of the most sophisticated digital threats, such as those from the NSO Group and other private companies developing state-sponsored mercenary spyware. Turning on lockdown mode in iOS 16, iPadOS 16, and macOS Ventura further hardens device defenses and strictly limits certain functionalities, sharply reducing the attack service that potentially could be exploited by highly-targeted mercenary spyware. The lockdown mode is said to disable all kinds of protocols and services that run normally. Just-in-time JavaScript won't run at all. And that's likely a defense against the use of just-in-time JavaScript spraying, a common technique used in malware exploitation, according to Ars Technica. While in lockdown mode, devices also can't enroll in what's known as mobile device management used for installing special organization specific software such as that from Microsoft Intune or now MEM. Other features include most message attachment types other than images are blocked. Certain complex web technologies like just-in-time JavaScript but also others will be disabled in lockdown mode. Apple services like incoming invitations and service requests, including FaceTime calls, are also blocked if the user has not previously sent the initiator a call or request before. Wired connections with a computer or accessory are blocked when iPhone is locked. Configuration profiles cannot be installed and the device also cannot be enrolled in MDM. So yeah, pretty locked down. Very interesting pivot from Apple. And as Ars Technica suggested, it would be interesting to see if the likes of Google also go down this path as well. Little old me, your humble podcast host, got retweeted by The Register last week. I had, quote, tweeted an article that they posted about IT departments often regretting technology buying decisions. And their article featured a lot of Gartner analysis inside of it. Uh, they said that 56% of organizations have said they had a high degree of regret over their largest tech-related purchase in the last two years, according to a survey that contained 1,120 executives in North America, Western Europe, and Asia Pacific in its data. My tweet alluded to what the study also pointed out, and that is the fact that 67% involved in technology buying decisions are not in IT, which means that anyone could be a tech buyer for their organization. This is the so-called lines of business phenomenon where someone in marketing, for example, uses the corporate credit card to buy a product or service that IT admins then have to help manage. So this is a major problem and wastes billions of dollars each year, and I have no doubt about it. But it also sounds like they're talking about when a certain department procures software and then it's like hey it implement this which is kind of one thing that's just take onboarding an application maybe packaging it up and deploying it to desktops or installing it on application web services and then deploying the client app or you know publishing it in citrix or something like that yeah that's challenging that's just kind of part of what we do in euc uh but i think what's more of a problem is EUC teams need tools to do their jobs and they don't necessarily get to pick and implement the tools that they need in order to do their jobs. So like for example, a monitoring product. If a team is like, hey, this is what we need, this is the criteria, this is the product we want, let us do the POC, okay, we've executed the POC, it's met all the success criteria, please buy this. And then management decides, nah, we're going to actually buy this other product instead that's an even bigger problem because you're crippling the department that is already handling all these off the wall requests where departments are kind of doing their own thing and then saying, just make it happen. You're crippling the teams that have to do that work by giving them inadequate tools to actually do that work. So I think actually just the fact that IT teams don't get to decide what products they use for doing their jobs is even more of a hindrance then these departments buying whatever the heck they want and then just throwing over the wall to IT to implement it. Just wasting billions of dollars each year. That's all I gotta say about that. But now some quick hit stories to wrap up the news this week. Gert-Jan Youngenel I'm sorry if I butchered the name, I'm almost certain I did in this case, Uh, tweeted this week that he noticed the integration between the AVD host pool wizard and custom trusted launch based images from an Azure compute gallery now seems to be available. It's no longer just limited to the default images from Microsoft. So uh, an expanded list of pre-canned images in Azure that you can use for your AVD host pools. Cool. And Daryl from Daryl as a Service on Twitter, cool handle, uh, shared that the Microsoft Loop components have arrived in Outlook Web Client. And he shows a video, which if you're not watching the YouTube edition of this show, you can find that at fivebytespodcast.com under YouTube for episode 389. Um, But if you're listening to the audio only, he's showing within the Web Client now, uh, you have essentially what is like a space if you've ever used something like maybe Elementor uh, for websites or uh, even just the I think is a Gutenberg editor within WordPress where you've got kind of a rich editing field rather than just the usual plain text field within uh, Outlook uh, web so you can maybe quicker and easier make more rich looking emails essentially so pretty cool And possibly my favorite announcement this week, Mark Razinovic announced that Zoom It version 6 has been released, and it includes a screen magnification and annotation tool. But more importantly, they've added built-in screen recording for easy demo recordings. Awesome! Can't wait to try it out. I'll probably try it out on Friday when I have a little time, but so, so cool. And Laura Rogers shared that you're now able to rename your OneDrive shortcuts. Short one, but a goodie. I saw that Manuel Winkel shared that the Evergreen script, which I featured heavily on the podcast in the past, is now henceforth being renamed and it's going to be called Never Read. I think that's a really cool name, actually. I think he shared that Matthias Slim suggested the name. That is a cool, cool name. Nice one. Jason Sandis shared a reminder that as of July 12th, 2022, July 12th being an interesting date in Ireland, uh, System Center 2012 Configuration Manager, so SCCM 2012, uh, 2012 R2, the 2012 Endpoint Protection and 2012 R2 Endpoint Protection are no longer receiving security updates and technical support. And now, this episode, Scripts, Tricks, and Tips. So there's a lot to cover in this week. Uh, But first up, Brian Posse shared his blog on how to create functions in PowerShell scripts. He goes through the basics for designing functions, including functions that use parameters. So if you're pretty new or you're maybe not even new to PowerShell yet, you haven't tried it yet, but this piques your interest, Uh, Follow this guide to learn how to create functions. Matt Sosman published a video on automating SecOps by blocking SaaS applications. It goes through how you can uh, generate automatic emails to the SecOps team when a new SaaS app is discovered and give them the option to allow or block them automatically. So pretty cool. Owen Reynolds shared a blog via the C.U.G.C. on Windows Build Automation with Packer PowerShell 2022 Reddix. I have not used Packer, I've read quite a bit about it over the years. Pretty interesting one. If you're interested too, check out the blog. The Get IT Guy shared a pretty nice MECM device online status report that you can generate and build using PowerShell. The awesome Morton Pentold shared an example that he's created for automatically emailing users after cloud PCs have been provisioned, which is actually something I tweeted about just last week. So great timing for me. I haven't actually tried this out yet, but it's definitely one I'm gonna try out. Tessa Davis had a really cool thread on Twitter this week covering 10 amazing websites that cost you nothing, but will save you hundreds of hours of your life. And like one example is, being able to upload maybe a uh, self-portrait and automatically have it cut out the background and make it transparent so you can just put your own picture on whatever background you please. That's just one example. There's nine other really great resources included too. My buddy Tom Fenton from ControlUp also shared just a tip really to check out VMware Test Drive. He says that he finds the hands-on lab with VMware Test Drive indispensable. So check that out. Mika Hausler shared a really great thread uh, where he deep dived into security on his Ubiquity or unified dream machine. So I know a lot of people out there have the dream machines in their home environments, but he started receiving these alerts at 1 a.m. that there was like an intruder potentially trying to get into his system and he kept getting multiple notifications. And he goes through in this thread in great detail of what he did to kind of look further and also what he found. So very cool stuff. Eswar Kaneti shared uh, PowerShell scripts for adding bulk devices to the Azure AD security groups for Intune deployments. Jeff Woosley shared a really handy PDF that contains a server 2022 comparison chart basically comparing the most current release with the previous two major versions like Windows Server 2019 and 2016 on a feature-by-feature basis. And finally, Jake Stoker blogged on deprovisioning your Windows 365 Cloud PCs. So deprovisioning is actually, it's not a very obvious thing on how to do it. You would think maybe it'd be just like right-click and deprovision the desktops or the Cloud PCs, but it's not that, it requires steps like going into your provisioning policy, maybe unassigning from that user, then the Cloud PC goes into a grace period, so then you have to end the grace period. Um, It's something that I've been doing quite a lot because I've been working a lot with Windows 365, both the business desktops and the enterprise Cloud PC, which is where you might be provisioning and deprovisioning. But I also encountered an issue, I think it was last week or the week before, um, where my desktop would not deprovision correctly from a user And when I went to end the grace period, it threw an error real quick. The error wasn't very descriptive. Um, But then the desktop or the Cloud PC did disappear, but it never showed deprovisioning. And then I was stuck in a state where when I tried to reassign a new Cloud PC to that user, uh, it said that user already had their allocated license used up, so I was kind of stuck in a limbo state. Uh, But Fabian from Microsoft helped me out. Seems to be a bug and maybe it's one that support already knew about because they had the steps just ready to go. Uh, These steps were not steps that I could find anywhere online, so I figured that I would share them via my own blog, and I'll share that and everything I talked about on this week's episode over at fivebytespodcast.com under reference links with this episode, which is episode 389. Well, that's it for this week's episode. Thank you all so much for listening.